Welcome to episode 132 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Lolita, Michelle, Leilani, Gregory, and Bianca. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Lolita, Michelle, Leilani, Gregory, and Bianca for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Do you obsess over the thought that your loved one might be lying? Do you have to prove the lie? How do you find the ability to trust in recovery after a period of lying? Today, we're going to talk about living with lies. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences as they relate to this topic of living with lies. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. Joining me is co-host Julia. How are you today, Julia? Hi, Spencer. I'm doing pretty well. Awesome. And uh, I think you found a reading for us. I did. Um, I found a reading from The Dilemma of the Alcoholic Marriage. It's near the beginning of the book on page eight. The heading is The Alcoholic's Dual Personality. The changes that alcohol creates in a person are difficult to understand and still more difficult to cope with. The alcoholic's hidden guilt and unhappiness may reveal themselves in torrents of explosive temper and accusations, to which the spouse impulsively reacts by feeling hurt, until she learns in Al-Anon that it is futile to take these outbursts seriously. She thinks he really means what he is saying, which compels her to to defend herself against his unjust attacks by fighting back. She doesn't realize that his rage is really at himself and that he must vent it on the nearest person. He knows from experience that he will get the reaction he wants, which helps to ease his guilt feelings. It is at such times that the spouse may decide in desperation that something must be done, that she must take steps to free herself from this intolerable situation. But if the alcoholic's mood has a change for the better, she may forget her resolve and hope that somehow things will get better. This is especially true if the violent episode is followed by a spell of sobriety and the alcoholic reverts temporarily to his old self. Then hope is reborn and the wife's decision vanishes from her mind. She once more sees him as he is, the man she married. She doesn't allow herself to face the fact that what has happened so often will certainly happen again as long as he continues to drink, and she continues to react in the same way to his irrational behavior. When she comes to the point of recognizing the dual personality of the alcoholic as a whole, she will know how to change her own attitudes and course of action. She may, too, in the times of sobriety, be tempted to admit to a fault or otherwise expose a sensitive side of her nature, only to find that when he drinks again, he will use her confidences to hurt her through ridicule or accusation. When this happens repeatedly, she becomes wary and is careful to guard against sharing confidences with him. To see this situation realistically, she would have to understand how desperately the guilt-tormented alcoholic needs such weapons to bolster his own ego. When he uses these weapons to attack, it is not because he hates his wife, but because he hates himself and needs to reassure himself that he is not all bad. He finds fault with the person nearest to him because it makes it a little easier for him to tolerate himself. 
The spouse, seeing it only as a betrayal of her trusts, withdraws more and more, keeping their conversations less and less intimate. Such fear of hurt can cause severe breakdowns in communication. Thanks for that. And as I was listening, I just kept substituting lies for attacks, and and it works very nicely for our topic today, which yes. uh, was uh, prompted by uh, an email from Erica, and she asked the question in this way. One thing that I struggle with in my current situation is being lied to. When my qualifier reverts back to an active addiction state, he lies more than anything else. I become a detective, and I don't stop until I can prove the lie. Is it possible to have a show on lying or regaining trust after a period of lies? I really liked the uh, the part in your, your reading there about um, when the uh, alcoholic is sober for a while and becomes his old self again, that uh, we forget what it was like. And we say, oh, everything's great. It's, you know, no more problems. And then yes. when it comes back, I think, and and certainly in my experience, that then breaks our trust even more. Yes. As usual, I, I wrote down a list of discussion questions, but I'm not sure exactly um, where we want to start with this. Uh, maybe a little bit about personal experience of having been lied to in a relationship with an alcoholic or addict. I met the alcoholic who uh, who qualifies me really um, in in my freshman year of college, and um, we dated for eight years. But soon after we started dating is when I noticed that there was some weird weird things that didn't quite add up with things that he was saying. And in in my situation, it was um, uh, lies of grandeur. He was a musician. He told me things about recording this solo album, and and he would play this album, but he wouldn't he wouldn't sing for me. And then I found out, like um, the summer after we started dating, that that this musician was actually the uh, another person, a complete other person. Hmm. And that was such a bizarre lie to me. I didn't really understand um, why he would do that, and it really really upset me. And it, it did break my trust because I didn't it seemed like a, a silly thing to lie about and I didn't understand why he couldn't just like um, be himself. We had a long discussion after, um, after I f- caught the lie and then I thought that it was over that, okay, that's, that's the last time he's going to lie to me. And as the relationship went on, I found more and more um, things that he would lie about. I would think that it's the typical um things that people encounter in re- in relationships with alcoholics in terms of lying about how much you've had to drink, things like that, and or how much money was spent. That was a huge thing for me. Um, I'm still recovering, actually, financially from the burden that the alcoholic relationship put on my uh, finances um, because he would, he would actually take my debit card from mm-hmm. my purse um, after I had gone to sleep and go out to the bar and just spend however much money and then put it back when he was done. He did that all the way up until the time that, that I eventually kicked him out. It was very difficult for me to enforce boundaries. Actually, obviously, it was impossible for me to enforce boundaries until I finally um, had to like have him not live with me anymore. Mm-hmm. But yes, there there was a lot of lying, and it was very very confusing to me because I had I had been brought up, even though I was brought up in an alcoholic home, I was brought up to 
to tell the truth always, even, um, you know, not say anything if you don't want to say anything, you know, lies by omission are okay, but never tell a bold-faced lie. And so um, being in this environment with an alcoholic who was not only a very a very seasoned liar, but very convinced in what he was saying. And I think sometimes he believed the things he was saying, whether they were lies about, oh, I'll stop tomorrow, which really I, they might believe that at the time mm-hmm. or whether it's lies like, oh no, I, I don't know what happened to that $20 bill. You know, it's a very, it's a very confusing environment to be in, especially with active alcoholism. And it's a very difficult kind of trust to, uh, to regain, yeah. What about you, Spencer? Yeah, I was thinking about this, and the conclusion that, that I came to is, at least as far as I can remember, um, I think most of the, the lies in my relationship with the primary alcoholic in my life were lies of omission. Mm. And, and part of that, I think, is because... Um, I had very strong denial, and and that's a topic that I want to touch yes. on later is how we lie to ourselves. Oh, yes. So if I didn't ask about something, then I wasn't going to find out what I didn't want to find out. Mm-hmm. Sort of uh, putting blinders on, I guess, is, is oh, one yeah. way to look at that. And, and so, for example, when um, she had been in recovery for a number of months after – uh, a long-term residential treatment, and and I thought everything was great, and I was ignoring uh, signs that she might be drinking again. I was excusing them again, lies we tell to ourselves, mm-hmm. and and she was, as it turned out, and I I'm not sure for how long this went on, but she was very clearly hiding her drinking, and it finally came to a point where it was obvious, uh, and I went and looked in her closet, and there were all these empty wine bottles in her closet. And so the lie there was acting as if uh, she wasn't drinking and hiding the fact that she was drinking. Mm-hmm. And so she was actively hiding it, but I wasn't, it wasn't like directly to me. If you see the distinction there, I don't know. I do remember being in a therapist's office during that period. And the therapist asked me how things were going. And I said, I think things are going great. I'm not worried at all. And and she turned to me and she said, well, maybe you should be worried. Which I realized mm-hmm. later, uh, she was already, I think, already drinking at that point. And she was sort of trying to, I think, pro- you know, prod me into into making it come out. I don't know. I don't really know exactly what was going on there. I mean, obviously she was, she was not telling the truth about the fact that she was drinking and probably the therapist had asked her and she, she had said no. So I don't know. Um, but Mm. there was, there was a lot of that. Um, there was a lot of hidden drinking, uh, later in, in our relationship. I think before she really started actively trying to, to find recovery, uh, it was pretty, pretty out in the open. Um, she drank at home mostly and, and was not hiding off in the bedroom or whatever while she was doing it. And I think later, uh, after she'd been in recovery for a while and was, and then had relapsed and, and I think she really started hiding it more then. And I didn't find out about some things until quite a bit later, uh, mm-hmm. when she talked, for example, about going to the grocery store and sitting in her car in the parking lot and drinking, 
presumably so that I wouldn't see her drinking that much at home. Mm. I wasn't asking, but I think later when I found out about this stuff, I, I, I felt the betrayal, but it wasn't really there at the time for me. You know, the, the, the emotional reaction to, to the, the untruths wasn't there. Right. You know, I'm trying to think about like just blatant bald faced lies that, that she might've told. And I don't think she did. I think it was all this sort of uh, subterfuge thing, you know, this, this doing mm. things in secret and not, and not, not telling and hiding the evidence. Yeah. I do want to, sort of go back to the reading and, and, and the actual things that happened to lose trust because it very definitely was the case that in some cases she would pick up something that I had said and sort of turn it back at me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that really damaged sort of emotional trust. And so the, the, the question of regaining trust later is, is a difficult one. And I have to say, you know, there are still times and she's been in recovery for over 10 years now, there are still times when I'll see some behavior and my, you know, that, that reptile brain or whatever it is that, that causes fear in the back of my head will say, is she drinking? Yes. <laughs> you know? yep. like, and, and, and I think that is a reaction to the, the lie of hiding, hiding the mm-hmm. behavior, hiding the drinking. Yep. Actually, the next question here is, how have you lied to yourself? And, and I think I already gave some, some good examples there about uh, where I was, I was lying to myself about not seeing, not seeing this behavior. You know, that, well, she was coming home from work and taking a nap just because you know, work was stressful and she was tired, not because she stopped and drank a quart of wine on the way home, obviously. That, that wasn't <laughs> happening. You know, that couldn't have been happening because, you know, she was sober now, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, had, I had all those lies. I, the, I was mm-hmm. really good at those lies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't want to believe that things aren't going well. <laughs> you, you don't, um, especially when, when things have been going better for a while. Yeah. That's especially hard. I had... Plenty of plenty of times where um, I was in denial about about certain things. One where I'm going to have to make an amend about this, but I had a roommate for a time, and me and my boyfriend went down to this St. Patrick's Day parade in the morning several years ago, and he had brought with him a six pack of beer from the fridge. I had assumed that he had bought it somewhere. But when we got back from the parade, my roommate confronted both of us and asked about the Heineken. Mm. And I defended my boyfriend because I was like, oh, no, it couldn't have been yours that he took. He, I'm sure he didn't take it. It was something it, I think he bought it on the way or he didn't bring anything with him. And I mean, I don't know how much of a I mean, I really think that I believed at the time, like, oh, yeah, I'm sure he didn't like steal from my roommate. Mm-hmm. But um but of course, I'm I'm pretty sure now looking back that he absolutely did, and that I'm going to have to make amends for um, for helping that lie along. There are yeah, there were plenty of times where I was in denial of um, of even whether he was an alcoholic, even though it was very very plain because you know oh well he doesn't really drink liquor very often; it's just beer really, and he doesn't drink every 
day. Things like that where I was trying, I was like obsessing over what qualified a a real addict or a real alcoholic, you know, Mm -hmm. when really what was plain as day was right in front of me in how he acted and um and how it affected him him and other people Mm -hmm. yeah i want to read at this point an email we got from brian about this topic because i think it fits in here so spencer and company been taking some time to work the program as in working steps going through my inventory with my sponsor it feels like pulling a band-aid off slowly but i know what the program promises when it's over so i keep going I was really excited when I heard that you were thinking about doing a show on Living With Lies. My take on the idea seems like it is a little different than the original request. When I think of the phrase, Living With Lies, it takes me back to the dark times. One of the mantras I picked up before program was, What I Choose to Believe. This is my own self-aware version of lying to myself while living with alcoholism. For example, my qualifier told me that she wanted to get sober and that she wanted to stay together as a family. Even though her behavior said otherwise many, many times, I chose to believe that she really did want to be a mother and a wife deep down. I would have to recall those times when she talked about staying together when she was sober, because there were times when she was drunk that she would verbally attack me. Questions like, how could you love me? Why do you love me? Why do you stay with me? What did you see in me when we met that makes you stay would endlessly circle around when she was drunk. This was one of the signs or tells. She would go as far as to humiliate me as a man just so she could push me away. I tried to take this stoically for a lot of reasons. One, she was drunk and never remembered what she said the next day. Two, if she was talking to me, she was focused on me and not intoxicated in front of our young children and scaring them. Three, I truly loved her even when she couldn't love herself and believed that there was a beautiful spark of life in there somewhere that was worth waiting for. With some program in me now, I don't know how much of that was just a coping mechanism, but whatever it was, it got me through those times. I asked myself then and now, was I lying to myself? I don't know. What I do know is that I hadn't yet reached the point where I couldn't take it or stand it anymore. When it did come to that point, she could see it in me, and maybe that helped motivate her to get sober. I don't know. One of the things that I have come to terms with is that there are levels of trust. This applies to qualifiers as well as in the rest of my life. I can love or like someone and trust them only a little. I think that is my default setting, actually. I've gradually learned to be more vulnerable with my qualifier, my parents, my kids, and even some friends. When I was a young adult, I lived at the other end of the spectrum and had explosive emotional vomiting at awkward times. I would talk to a girl I like and share my entire emotional life story, warts and all, and then cross my fingers and hope not to get burned. I guess it was kind of a litmus test for new friends. Amazingly, people found this very unsettling, and I ended up isolating myself more as a result. There were and are many times when I would catch my qualifier and exaggerations that it border on lying for me. I have learned to pick my battles with this, and have learned to live with it as long as the exaggeration is not harmful. My sponsor told me that this was the right thing to do because we never know what the truth looks like to another person. In other words, she might believe that her perceptions of the event occurred that way, and my diminishing the event is just part of my skewed view of the world. Whoever has to read this on air is probably ready for me to stop now, so I will leave it there. <laughs> Thanks for what you do, yours in recovery, Brian. And uh, wow, it's a, there's a lot in there. Yeah. Um, what do you connect with? Uh, wow, I connect with a lot of it. I think it really, I feel like the reading that we did at the beginning ties in a lot with yeah. this with this email 
it's it's really tough when you when you love someone but you you feel but you can't trust them it's such a it's a bizarre place to be and i feel like it's very commonplace to be for alcoholics and their loved ones and i really related also to actually the how he said that he used to um emotionally vomit on uh with, when he was younger with people that he hardly knew uh i tend to do that sometimes as well now now that I'm able to express my feelings without as much fear of retaliation, sometimes I feel like uh, like I might do it unwisely. And I, that's something that I should probably work on a little bit, but it's just kind of a relief to, to not have to be so guarded all the time anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, now that I have better tools, now that I have Al-Anon and a sponsor I can really confide in, you know, if if nothing else, I can always confide in my sponsor. So maybe I can draw back a few from a few people that maybe might not be the most trustworthy people or the or in recovery or something. But with a sponsor, I can always trust. Yeah. Um, what about you, Spencer? What What did you think of it? Well, I definitely have connected with some of these things that he would say to himself. Well, she's drunk. She doesn't really know what she's saying. Mm-hmm. The one about when she's talking to him then she's focused on him and not scaring the children that's wow that that sort of thing never occurred to me but i do know that the the kids were not um comfortable in her behavior i don't but i never thought about like distracting her from them what does that say about me i don't know hmm. um and about love i mean that is just that is a tough one because the behavior was so abhorrent um, and it took me a long time to, uh, and I'm, I'm maybe getting ahead a little bit here, but to, to get to the point of being able to detach her from her disease and, and to love her. And while I still hated the, yeah. what the, what the alcohol was doing to her. Right. Um, I'm to come back a little bit. Um, so when you were being lied to, and particularly before you found Alan on it, and I, I don't remember, I think we've talked about this before, but I don't remember when in your relationship you actually came to Al-Anon. Um, it was, it was while I was in the relationship. I started dating him in 06, and I came to Al-Anon in 2012. Wow. And then I, um, yeah, and then I, um, broke up with him um, actually almost to the day uh, two years ago mm-hmm. in 2013. When you were being lied to in those six years, how did you, do you remember how you reacted, how you felt? I do remember feeling very, very betrayed and hurt. I There, there was specifically a time in uh, 2007 or eight when I had told him he had said that he did cocaine recreationally um, every once in a while. And I told him that I would not date him if he did that. And one night he was with friends and I suspected that, that they were doing it. And I walked into a room and sure enough, he was. And um, I, I felt so hurt and betrayed that I left the room very angrily, very, very tearfully and um, went to my car and basically left him there. I think after, after I'd calmed down a little bit, he was high and I couldn't really have a a good conversation with him, obviously. But I remember just being, just feeling just a huge 
pit in my stomach, like the that horrible, I don't know, the, I feel like the feeling of betrayal when you think that you're being lied to is so, it's so deeply personal to me. And um, even, even if it's not actually personal, which I know it isn't, it's like, it's the disease, it's the addiction talking. And it just, it does what it will, regardless of who's in front of it. But for me, I just took it so personally that it felt really like I had been wounded and I just, I couldn't even wrap my head around it. Somehow I would, uh, after all these betrayals, I, I would, um, find a way to, to, uh, take him back and to say, just don't do it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that would work for a little while until it didn't. Yeah. 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 And, and I think the, hurt the despair i felt despair sometimes when i would find out that so when she had this relapse after i think it was almost eight months of sobriety wow i mean i was just a stew of emotions there there was there was anger there was fear um, and fear turns into despair like is this ever gonna you know i thought we had licked this thing are we ever gonna lick this thing Mm-hmm. Um, but at that point I was already in the program, you know, so at least I had some tools and I had, mm-hmm. I was able to, to pick up more meanings and, and I had some people I could talk to. So that, that helped a lot. Yeah. Um, but I think, as I've said earlier, my primary reaction to being lied to was to deny or ignore the fact that, that the behavior was happening, that the lies were happening, that it's just like, oh, well, everything's fine. It's not well. Everything's not fine, but it it's okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's not fine. It's just okay. Yes. (laughs) Something. Uh, I would. I yeah. I would make excuses. Um, Just lots of stuff there. Lots of stuff there. Um, I have a voicemail from Pat. Hey Spencer, Uh, this is Pat again from the West Coast. Just you had asked for input about lies and. Thought I'd tell you about when I first came to Elanon, and I didn't know what to think because my person that I'd been living with for many years at that point in time was extremely adept at hiding his drinking in his bottles, and I, you know, couldn't have told you if he was an alcoholic. It was so valuable to come to those first meetings and hear somebody say. It's only if someone's drinking bothers you. You don't have to have proof that makes the label of the alcoholic. And I remember this just very early meetings. I found three things that were critical for me to deal with as lies. And one of them was just to focus on behavior. I didn't need proof. I needed to look at the behavior on his part. Was it acceptable that I need to create boundaries as the second concept was setting boundaries, that it was okay to set boundaries, and that I needed to be honest. And that was the honesty with myself about what my role was and to start working the steps. So the real key for me was that I didn't need to make any judgment about whether someone was telling me the truth or not. And since then, I've thought many times how if someone else is lying to me, that's that's their bad, and that's on them to figure out what the right thing or the wrong thing to do is. What I need to do is focus on what their behaviors are. Are they acceptable to me? 
and do I need to set boundaries, and then always working the program with as much honesty as I can. Um, I hope that's helpful to someone, and thank you very much. Bye-bye. And uh, and thanks, Pat. And, you know, that I think that leads very nicely into how do we treat lying and and dishonest behavior when we're working a healthy program of recovery? How How is that different from the way we used to? A couple of things that I heard in, in Pat's share here uh, are two of the, I think, most important tools when dealing with alcoholic uh, behavior, dishonest behavior lies, and those were detachment and, and boundaries. And I really liked what she had to say about it doesn't really matter what they're saying, um, that if we focus on on what they're doing, um, then we can decide whether that behavior is acceptable and, and where we might need to set boundaries around the behavior. Right. And boundaries on behavior. And, and the thing that I think about that was a place where I was able to set boundaries for the most part, uh, fairly early in my recovery program was around uh, providing the alcohol mm. that, uh, you know, I would be at the grocery store and she say, she would say, Hey, can you pick up a couple bottles of wine? And, and I would say no, because that was one of the things that made me angry was feeding her addiction. And right. the fact that I felt, you know, I had to be the good, the good, you know, person in the relationship. And if she asked me to do this, then I had to do it. And I came to understand that I didn't have to, um, and that I didn't have to feed the behavior that I didn't like. Mm-hmm. I think since since there was so little sort of direct lying, I think for me, looking at the behavior was mostly what I was, to some extent, able to do. And I think that in terms of continuing to live with what I viewed as, as dishonest behavior, which was saying, I want to get sober and I'm not getting sober, that the key tool for me there was detachment uh, to, to understand. And a friend of mine in the program put it in a way that, that I thought was, was really helpful. She was talking about one of her children and said, this, children, this child was, was acting addictively and whether or not they were actively, actually, you know, alcoholic or addict. She said, it doesn't matter. You know, it's the behavior that counts and, and that I will not expect from this person anything important at this point. Because uh, if I ask them to do something that really matters to me and then they, they don't do it, which is, you know, they say yes and then they don't do it, that's definitely a form of lying. Mm-hmm. Then that will hurt. She said, for example, I could, I could ask them out to lunch. And if they don't show up to lunch, I can still have lunch. And then she gave an analogy or a metaphor. I'm not sure which, but she said, it's like, I have, I have this end table that I really like, but, and I've had it for a long time and I don't want to get rid of it, but it's, it's kind of rickety. And I might put a book on it because if, if the table wobbles and the book falls off, it's not going to hurt the book, but I'm not going to put, um, a vase of flowers on it because if the table wobbles and the vase falls off and it breaks, then 
that's a that's a much greater consequence. Mm-hmm. And and I treat my child in the same way uh, at this point. And and that to me that sort of connects to detachment that uh, I can understand the things that I'm able to ask of my loved one, the things that I can reasonably expect of my loved one and the things that I can't reasonably expect. Uh, and, and I can only ask for those things that, that either if it doesn't happen, it doesn't hurt or that, that I believe are honestly within her abilities. And the other thing that I'm remembering now that, that Pat said uh, about whether or not her loved one was an alcoholic and I recently was listening to a, an open speaker talk and the person said, well, what I was told was if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, then go ahead and treat treat it like it is a duck. Mm-hmm. Uh, that if someone's behavior is affecting me in a way that it would if they were alcoholic, if they're you know, if if there's a problem of drinking, and that's a, that's actually a phrase from the book somewhere, that I will treat it as if that really is what it is, because it's affecting me in the same way, whether this is actually a duck or a goose or whatever. But okay, enough of that. Enough of that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like you were. Uh, it, it's it comes back to putting the focus on yourself, um, in a way, like instead of being obsessed with what, what are they doing? How do I define this thing that they are? It's how does it affect me? What is happening to me? And I think that the same can be kind of said for lies. Sometimes you don't even know if you're being lied to. And, uh, I mean, for me, that, that was a huge part of it is sometimes I just didn't know if I was being lied to. And, um, a lot of gaslighting was involved in that, in that respect. But I think that just being able to cope with then that the feeling that I get when my qualifier says these things or does these things that seem like lies. As you were talking, I thought about the slogan, how important is it? Mm-hmm. Because I think that also there's the nature of what kind of lies are being told. And like you were saying with expectations, I don't know if I I can expect an active alcoholic to be completely truthful about everything. I don't think I could expect that. Just like I I mean most everyone lies in in life and I think it's good to keep a good perspective on on what are the important lies and then also communicating in a way or finding a way to communicate when when the truth is most important. Yeah. So detachment and boundaries, absolutely. Um, I I always had a very difficult time, admittedly, with with boundary making. Even after after I joined Al-Anon, I was never able to really enforce the the end of enabling. I, I financially supported him until the end. It was very difficult for me to do boundaries for a while. Um, and until I was able, until I actually left the relationship, now I feel like it's easier for me going into new ones or reconstructing relationships with other people. It's easier for me to um, really enforce boundaries or to think about myself and how I want to treat myself and how I want others to treat me. And whether they will or not is up to them, but but I know how I can protect myself, you know. 
at some point you sort of, I guess, said to yourself, this is, there's too much of this, uh, and I can't, I can't deal with this. And the only way for me to deal with this is to, is to cut this person out. Is that, is that a, a fair statement? Um, yes, there were there were a variety of things that led up to the final mm-hmm. thing. And part of it was actually lying on my part that I couldn't live with the fact that I was that I had felt for a very long time that this wasn't the really right relationship for me, but I was just afraid of leaving it. Mm-hmm. That was another lie that that um I had really deeply, deeply uh ignored <laughs> for a long time. So, yeah, it was a combination of all the lies that were surrounding our relationship. I ended up actually breaking up with him um, and telling him that he needed to find a place within a few weeks. And he didn't believe me because I was so bad at making boundaries and going Mm. through with with the things that I had said. Um, He didn't believe me. And so he never really made an effort to find a place to live until I said, finally, if you don't find a place by Christmas Eve, I'm going to have to put your stuff outside. And that was the hardest thing for me to say because I felt like I must be the worst person in the world to say that. But I knew that it wasn't going to happen unless I actually made it clear that I was serious. Mm-hmm. Um, there, And so then he, that day um, or a few days later, called called someone and um, I I drove him to the place that he moved to and and that was not the last time that we talked or anything, but um, that was the last time that he came to my place. So the sort of the last part of this question was how to how do we regain or rebuild trust? And I guess in your case, that's it's not an issue with that person, I guess, because that person's no longer in your life. Mm-hmm. But do you feel that? Because of that experience, you maybe, and I know because of my experience, I definitely have trust issues. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I, only, I have to regain trust in my loved one, but that it has hurt my ability to trust a lot of, in general. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with, with him, he, as far as I know, he's never found recovery and um, and I don't speak to him at all. But also my, my father is a, um, dry alcoholic and, um, I have, sometimes I have, lying has never really been an issue. I don't know. There have been other, there have been other issues that make me just not want to trust him because he's a, he can, he has a tendency to be quite judgmental and controlling. And so Mm -hmm. I, um, so it's, it's been a matter of me recognizing recognizing those characters um those character traits in him and being able to conduct my behavior around him accordingly and while that's not the greatest building of trust i because i really don't feel that i can trust him with who i am and and a lot of things about myself uh i still feel like the points where i can connect with him i have to hold on to those mm-hmm. um yeah, just just be be with him in the ways that I can and be a trustworthy person myself. I think that's a huge thing. 
I've always kind of been a trustworthy person anyway, and I, I have always tried not to indulge with gossip or anything like that. But I feel like the more that my friends can trust me, then the better a relationship can be. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yeah. And and the, I think the the flip side of of my experience and and sort of a saving grace is finding in this program people that I can trust. Finding, mm, yeah, um, you know, a sponsor that, as you say, you can I can share. And even there, there were times when there were things that that I didn't want to share with my sponsor and that I had a lot of difficulty with because. Uh, this, I think it was the same open talk I was listening to. Um, the woman was talking about why it was so hard for her to open up uh, in with her sponsor or, or in recovery in general. And, and it was because of the fear of being judged as not good enough. And mm-hmm. I think that's a huge thing for me. And that's one of the things that still inhibits me from... Uh, giving complete trust to anybody. Um, yeah. I I feel like I'm going to be judged. And even though if I choose wisely, my experience has been that I can give trust and, and I will be received openly without judgment. But the fear mm-hmm. is still there. And, and the fear is there. So this is part of the problem. The thing that I haven't in, in, in my relationship with my loved one is that um, there are things that I still don't feel safe sharing. And I think when we first met, I think maybe it was that emotional vomit thing, but that I sort of, I feel like I shared everything with her. And, and so definitely there was a, a process over time of, of eroding trust. Yes. And I just, I have to take, I'm taking little steps I'm taking little steps. And when I take a little step and the sky doesn't fall down, then I can take the next little step. It's been a slow process. It really has been. But it, but I do see progress. If I look back, even over the last couple of years, I see some significant change in my attitude. And I think that a big part of that is me becoming sort of explicitly aware um, that I'm, I, I am having trust issues. Mm-hmm. And I need to think about this some more because I've been asked to participate in an Al-Anon forum on uh, intimacy in alcoholic uh, relationships. And, and so I really <laughs> have to get my thoughts into some coherent form and, and <laughs> that, that I can share where I'm, I'm at in this forum. So, this is this is a preparation for me as well. Uh-huh. Do you have any closing thoughts? Something that you might say to somebody who is new in recovery and and being lied to and just doesn't know how to how to live with it, how to deal with it at all. As you were talking at the end there, I started thinking about my higher power and um how the way that I conceive of my higher power is is a non-judgmental, honest, loving power and one that I can trust and mm-hmm. that I can always trust and will not lie to me ever, will never deceive me. And I believe that if nothing else, if, if we can't trust a qualifier, then it's important to have 
either someone in the program that we can trust or if even if we can't if even if we don't feel that we can start there to be able to trust our higher power and to trust ourselves um to trust our own feelings and i guess our instincts in ways and how that connects with our higher power too i think that that it's just it's just really really important to build that relationship with the higher power yeah yeah that's that is well that's a great point. Why did I not think of that one? <laughs> That's why it's good to have a conversation here, you know, because we think of things and we, we, we sort of push each other to think of things that we hadn't uh, thought of before. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I think one of the things that, and I don't think I touched on this earlier, one of the things that was became important to me in living in the act of alcoholism was understanding that her behavior was more a symptom of her disease and very much not about me. Yeah. And I think the reading that we started with uh, tried to say that uh, pretty better than I could, I think Um, (laughs) that uh, a lot of, a lot of the behavior of the alcoholic is coming out of their own self-hatred and their own, fear and it's not it's self-directed it's not directed at at us um even when it is physically like outwardly directed at us that's not where it's coming from and and helping and and becoming to understand that um helped a lot in my reaction being less emotional um and less reactive yeah it's a hard task. It is a hard task. You um, you suggested a song, Lies, by Churches, as one that um, would fit well with this program. Um, well, I really like this band generally. The song is from the perspective of someone who's manipulative and who can get whatever she wants by saying or doing what they think that the other person wants to hear. Mm. Um, and the, the chorus says i can sell you lies you can't get enough make a true believer of anyone 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 i can call you up if i feel alone i can feed your dirty mind like i know like i know what you want so i just thought that really fit with the theme in a way of lies and manipulation and how it can really make you um believe things that you normally wouldn't all right thanks for that thanks for that and Mm -hmm. thanks for your time today you're welcome thank you spencer In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. And since the last time I talked to you, uh, celebrated the American Thanksgiving holiday, which involved in this case uh, driving 400 miles with my wife and daughter to my parents' house and our other child flying in from Colorado to New York State for the weekend. So we had our whole family together which was wonderful and also, of course, a little stressful. I took advantage of the fact that I know a good meeting in the area on the day after the Thanksgiving holiday to, uh, to get a meeting in to talk about the ways in which 
I'm struggling with and um, finding acceptance of my mother's declining health. And I think my father's as well. It's not as obvious with him, but it is there. And how um, the program has really given me tools to be able to be with them and to set aside the fear uh, that they are aging and that I will lose them someday. To set that aside and to, to enjoy the time that we have together. And that's a blessing. It really is. There was a lot of driving involved uh, and uh, some getting up very early to get our um, child who was flying back to Colorado to an airport two hours away in time for a 10 a.m. flight. But everybody just pitched in and did it, and we actually made our scheduled departure time of 6 a.m., which amazed me because we almost never make our scheduled departure times. It was a beautiful day for a drive till we got to the Ohio Turnpike just after lunchtime, and it was bumper-to-bumper traffic, three lanes wide for 150 miles or something. And that was uh, stressful. And when I got on the uh, the last stretch of highway towards home, I decided that I'd had enough of high-speed, crowded conditions. And I got off the highway and drove the rest of the way home on a regular road. And that I, I don't think that's something I would have done uh, without the clarity that the program gives me about looking at my own feelings, looking at how... I am in a particular situation and knowing that I have choices and that one of those choices was to take a different route that was less stressful and maybe took a little bit longer, but sometimes, and and in this case, the lower stress was definitely worth the extra time. We, We didn't have a deadline to get home by. We weren't in a hurry. Had some other things this week that, uh, require choice and action and, did them without saying, oh, why, and this is horrible, and oh, more money, which, of course, almost always is what's involved. Been trying to keep up with my exercise, and which didn't happen too much over the, the Thanksgiving week because of events, parties, travel. Uh, I did manage to take a, a two-mile walk while I was at my parents' house, which includes several hundred feet uh, up a hill and back down, so felt pretty good about that, but only got that in once. This week I got back to the gym, and I could tell that I had been away. Uh, I was not at the place where I was a week before, and I had been talking about signing up for the... Uh, the gym offers a design-your-own-program session where you meet with one of the staff and and set out some goals and then get a, an exercise program designed to help you meet those goals. And I've been saying for a long time, oh, I need to do this, I need to do this. And when I was in on Saturday this week, I went over to the sign-up sheet and I put my name down for Friday morning at 7 o'clock. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, I'm, hope, I'm hopeful uh, for uh, something that will help me uh, to meet my goals of health and weight reduction and strength. So that's my week or so, and recovery has been 
helpful. It hasn't been as as huge a part as it as it is in some weeks, but it's always there, and it's always helps me to see choices, and helps me to make decisions, and it helps me to take care of myself. Upcoming topics: talk next week with Pat about the four L's, which are listen, learn, let go, and love. And if you have any thoughts about how those might apply in your life, how you might have found those in this program, how you might have used those, give us a call, send us an email, and you can do that by calling and leaving a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now. If you want, just pause the podcast. We'll be right here when you get back and call us at 734-707-8795 with your questions about or, or thoughts about this week's topic of living with lies or upcoming topics of the four L's. And also, I'll be having a discussion with Akila shortly with about uh, concepts 11 and 12, the concepts of service, which most of us in the program are probably not very familiar with. And it's been, it, we've had some really, I thought, thought-provoking and interesting and helpful discussions uh, over the course of the year about the first 10 concepts. And I have no doubt that Um, The last two will also uh, be the same. Also, if you don't want to use your phone, maybe you're outside the United States, you can use the voicemail button on the website to leave us a share, uh, join our conversation right from your computer. Or you can send email, if you don't want to use your voice, to feedback at therecoveryshow.com. And all the information that you need to know about the show is on our website, which is therecoveryshow.com. We have notes for each episode, including uh, music videos for the songs that we talk about. Uh, You can leave comments there. There's occasional meditations, including my 2015 gratitude meditation, which I did complete uh, the morning of Thanksgiving. So if you looked at it earlier when there were two or four or eight things on it, you might want to come back and see how I filled out the alphabet or not. If you'd really like to join the conversation, consider being a guest host as uh, Julia was this week, as uh, Pat will be next week, and as Akila has been for our concept episodes. And we've had you know, Brian with the slogans and a number of people throughout the years. So if you're interested, let me know. I'm going to take a short break. The second musical selection, which is available on the website at therecoveryshow.com slash 132 slash 132, is Policy of Truth by Depeche Mode. And this is a song, sort of from the opposite perspective, this is a song about how sometimes keeping to a policy of telling the truth all the time can hurt us. And I thought I'd throw that in there uh, as, a, as a contrast. And besides, I, I like the song. The group has been uh, one that I've enjoyed for, for quite a while now. Well, we did get some, uh, some email and some voicemail this week. Got one from a... Uh, person who has been a regular financial supporter of the show, saying, Spencer, just wanted to let you know how much I appreciate your work on the podcast and thoroughly impressed with the website. It might sound strange, but I've been a steady contributor. I've decided this month to revamp my budget, so I'm stopping my monthly contribution. I know it's a projection on my part, but I feel compelled to say if it were me, I'd have those thoughts like, hmm, I wonder if this person stopped liking the show. And that's definitely not the case. Yeah, I need program. So I just wanted to reach out and let you know that I'm so appreciative of what you do. Thank you for that note, because 
I, you know, I get this notice from PayPal says uh, so and so has stopped contributions, and and I do wonder a little bit, but you know, I figure it doesn't fit in your budget. But I appreciate you letting me know and reaching out and letting me know that you still appreciate the show, and and I just want to thank you so much and other people who've been regular contributors and continue to be regular contributors. Uh, thank you so much for for that support because it really does help to uh, to keep us going uh, to cover the expenses that we have and to enable us to occasionally uh, upgrade some uh, equipment or software, which I'm looking at doing this this month because uh, maybe it's just the end of the year, it's the holidays, and but uh, several people have made significant contributions this month, and that's going to enable me to uh, buy a piece of software that should make the, the program sound better, um, that I've been thinking about for a long time and been sort of renting time with the web version of this software and uh, to have it on my desktop will be very helpful. So thank you. Got a voicemail from Julia. Yes, the same Julia who was just participating in the show. Nice coincidence there. Hi, Spencer. This is Julia. Um, I was just listening to the podcast about slogans, and I thought it was really interesting to hear the different perspectives. For me, um, I really liked listening to um, the stuff about Easy Does It. Easy Does It was basically my lifesaver, my lifeline completely when I joined the program. Um, it was as a perfectionist, as someone who had huge high anxiety about everything that was going on in my life and just completely unsure about what to do with it. And I was convinced that I was failing at everything too. Um, Easy Does It was something that helped me be gentler to myself. Uh, I was I was just my own worst enemy, my own bully. And Easy does it reminds me that that it's okay that if I can just let myself give myself a little slack, a little room to just to 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 do what I need to do, um, that it'll all be okay. Uh, and someone pointed out in a meeting one time that like the rest of the phrases, easy does it, hard doesn't, and then that made me think of it as like oh, easy get things done when I think of things in in a more gentle way things are actually going to happen something's going to get done whereas when I force solutions when I'm really really working too hard at something um, it doesn't it doesn't get things done so anyway that was just my thought on um, that slogan in particular it was a great show I enjoyed hearing it thanks thanks for thanks for those uh, those comments Julia appreciate it and uh, that was a fun episode to do the slogans with Eric. Karen writes about the slogans episode, and, and which I titled, as you may have noticed, Slogans Part 1, because I figured we only talked about a few slogans, and gives me an opportunity to say, oh, we're going to have a series about slogans. Don't know how regular it's going to be, but I know we'll have more. Anyway, Karen writes, really enjoyed Eric as a co-host. Thanks. Look forward to the episodes. Short and sweet. Thank you, Karen. Another email from... Laura, she says, a quick note to thank you for your podcast and your website. I attended a meeting recently and had the opportunity to meet Eric. This is the night I was able to meet you and learn about your podcast and website by Skype. You're truly amazing, and I realize now how much I need this program of Elanon and the people I am meeting and will meet. Thanks again for everything you do. And thank you for those kind words, Laura. And I think I talked about, I think I talked about being... Um, a guest at a meeting remotely by Skype. And that was an interesting experience. I got to uh, 
hear the other speakers. It was a, an anniversary meeting, and so it, and there were three speakers. And I got to hear the other speakers, and then I got to, to speak, apparently with my head projected very large on a screen at the front of the room. I'm not sure exactly how I feel about that, but it was it was fun. It was different than doing the podcast, um, and uh, glad to uh, have had the opportunity to have that invitation. Thank you, Eric. Christina writes, uh, in response to the email from the woman in her 60s that finds herself not on the beach in retirement, but dealing with a husband with alcoholism. My husband stopped drinking a long time ago, but also stopped going to meetings. He was always high-functioning. We are both in our middle 60s, and he is now dealing with lung disease. Drinking and smoking always seem to go hand in hand. I attend meetings to handle the reality that he is an alcoholic, and right now I should be a supportive caretaker, but I'm back with all the triggers of the disease. I go to meetings to work on the resentments and guilt. It's an interesting stage of life anyway, and having plans to finally share life on good terms may have been a denial of mine. The biggest difference between the early years of active drinking and now is having Al-Anon in my life. But there are very few in the rooms that have reached my stage of life. There is Alatine. Maybe there should be Alasenior. <laughs> Thank you for all you do. You have joined me on many walks when I need to get out of the house. Christine. And thanks for sharing your experience, Christine. It is valuable for others who might need to hear it. Got a voicemail with a question. Hi, I have a question, and that is, um, if you know if there is any place to get an ebook version of the book Path to Recovery, 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, I'm trying to find it online and could not find any place that has it in an ebook version. And unfortunately, the only ebooks that I found online for um, Al Anon literature, there's an ebook version of How Al Anon Works, which I think I found at Amazon in a Kindle version, but I'm sure it's available in other ebook versions as well. And also the book Having Had a Spiritual Awakening that I also found in a Kindle version. Thank you, everybody, for your your contributions to our conversation here. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses, which run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web, ending your ear in a couple of ways. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Lolita, Michelle, Leilani, Gregory, and Bianca did. And thank you so much for your contributions this, this week. We've put together a list of recovery-related books. Click on the books link at the top of the page to find them. If you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we'll, we will receive a small commission. In fact, anything you order from Amazon after clicking on one of the links will help us. It costs you nothing extra and helps to keep us on the air. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it, whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, just tell them therecoveryshow.com, or just listening to us. We are here for you. Got a, a voicemail at the last minute uh, from Toby, who's suggesting a song for Living With Lies. Hi, my name is Toby, and I would like to suggest a song for the episode on Living With Lies. It is Christina Perry's song, Jar of Hearts. The emotions in the song speak to my personal experience of first living with lies on a daily basis and then making the choice to physically separate from the alcoholic in my life. I particularly relate to the words, it 
It took so long just to feel all right. Remember how to put back the light in my eyes. The first year that I lived away from my qualifier, even though we still had some contact and the lies continued, I felt as if there was that I was continually coming out into the sun, only to discover there was more and more sun to find in my life. For me, the best solution to the daily pain of living with lies has been physical separation from the alcoholic. That may not be true for everyone, but it is what has worked for me. Also, the program tools have helped me immensely. I have a sponsor and I am working the steps. I have Alan on Friends and I use the slogans, literature, and resources such as this podcast. All these tools help restore me to sanity and have allowed me to maintain a relationship with my qualifier while no longer living in the same home together. Um, I'm looking forward to the episode and uh, I want to thank the person who suggested the topic as it's one that's definitely affected me in my life. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time. Thank you.